Welcome to the HR for Small Business podcast, where we discuss HR best practices, hot topics, strategy, and employment law changes that affect small business. I'm your host, Brandon Laws of Zenium HR. Our website is www.zeniumhr.com, where you can follow us, read articles, listen to our recent podcasts, or contact us. Thanks for listening and enjoy the topic in this episode. I'd like to welcome back Iris Tilly to the podcast. Iris is an associate at Baron Liebman LLP in Portland, Oregon, and she specializes in employment law, ERISA compliance, HIPAA, and much more. Welcome, Iris. Thank you, Brandon. You're welcome. It's good to have you back. Last time we chatted about healthcare reform, and we had a good response on that, so we decided to let's have you back and let's talk about this subject again because there's been quite a few updates. So let's kind of dive right in and talk about uh, the employer mandate. So there's over the last few months we've there's in the news and in in the local media. There's been some talk about the delay of the employer mandate. Can you elaborate on this and kind of give listeners a sense for what they should expect? Absolutely. So right before the 4th of July, the administration kind of snuck out this little update. It came in, um, I think, one day before the holiday. And so I think that because of that, it kind of felt like a lot of employers were blindsided because a lot of people were on vacation and then they came back to this big change. But what the change was, was that the administration decided to delay for one year the components of healthcare reform that require employers to either provide coverage or pay a penalty. And this is for the employers who have that 50 employee mark or more. And so <clears throat> the significance of this delay is that employers don't have reporting obligations or any type of penalty liability in 2014 as expected. It's now delayed until the start of 2015. But all of the other aspects of healthcare reform at this point are moving forward. We still have the individual mandate moving forward and all of the insurance requirements that will require some changes to employers' health plans beginning at, at the start of 2014 or of their first plan year after the start of 2014. Well, so just to be clear, the, the, the delay is only regarding the employer mandate. It actually has nothing to do with the individual mandate whatsoever. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, and the exchanges are still going forward and opening. And so it's um, it's an in- interesting dichotomy at this point because healthcare reform is so reliant on the three aspects, the exchanges, the employer mandate, and the individual mandate. And so removing one of those components, I think it's definitely throwing a few hiccups into how the process is designed to work. Do you think that the delay of the employer mandate will will help employers a little bit in terms of the planning process and, and that sort of thing? Oh, it will absolutely help employers. I think that overall our clients breathed a big sigh of relief when that notice came in. The the difficulty for employers is that we still have this measurement and stability period issue that I know that we're going to be discussing a bit. But um, for employers who are going to be using measurement and stability periods, it actually isn't much of a reprieve because some transitional guidance that allowed employers a little bit more time to establish their measurement and stability periods wasn't extended along with the mandate. So it means that um, employers are still having to look at those periods this fall. Let's talk a little bit about the 
exchange and the in the individual mandate there are some deadlines coming up and Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of notices and and those sort of things that employers are required to do what can you talk about the what deadline uh, when it is and what employers are actually required to do and it's probably on the technical side of things but maybe you can walk uh, walk through that of course so we have the exchange notice deadline coming up on October 1st. And what the October 1st deadline is, is this is a deadline to provide this notice to all current employees. And then after that date, all new hires will need to receive this notice as part of their new hire packet. And what the notice is, is it's a notice letting employees know that the exchanges exist. And the DOL has actually put out a model notice that's available on its website for healthcare reform. And so if you just do a Google search, search of model notice, or if anyone needs it, they can feel free to email me and I'll send over the link. But there are two model notices, one for employers who intend to provide health care and one for employers who do not intend to provide health care. And one thing to kind of be aware of with the model notice is that the model notice for employers who will be providing health care is actually it's a three-page document, and the third page includes quite a bit of really cumbersome information about the health plan, where the notice is asking the employer to certify whether the plan meets certain health care requirements, and that final page is actually optional. And so it's not required by the regulation that governs these notices. And it says on the form that it's optional, but it's in like size four font. And so I've been getting a lot of questions from employers who are kind of saying, oh, I don't have any of this information. I haven't gotten it from my insurers, but we have to give this notice out. So just know that um, most employers at this point aren't filling out that final page. And um, anyone who's listening can certainly remove that final page and ignore it and just fill out those first pieces of the notice, which um, I think you'll find if you look at it, don't seem to really provide that much information, but it's all that the DOL is requiring at this point. And as I mentioned, the deadline for that is October 1st for existing employees and then upon hire for all employees going forward. And this will be an annual notice, so it will go in your open enrollment materials each year. So the the form is pretty standardized. Is there a lot of work that needs to go into to filling out this form and uh, getting out the, the information to the participants? No, there, there really isn't. It's a pretty straightforward form. It doesn't require much information from the employers as long as you ignore that page three of one of the notices. Great. And last time we, we did talk about the individual mandate a little bit, um, but there's been quite a bit new information, hasn't there? There has. We got final regulations on the individual mandate, and I think that um, the administration has really been pushing for those regulations because the individual mandate is still slated to go into effect as of January 1. And just as a reminder, the individual mandate is the piece of health care reform that requires all American adults to carry a minimal level of health insurance or to pay a penalty. And the penalty in the first year is really low. It's under $100 and some low-income individuals wouldn't have to worry about the penalty anyway, but um, but it is an aspect of health care reform that a lot of employees are concerned about because it could have an effect on their individual earnings and having to pay the penalty. And so what we saw that was interesting in the individual um, shared responsibility regulations that came out, the individual mandate regulations, is that those regulations are continuing to define what will constitute a health plan really, really broadly. And this is important from the employer's perspective because we saw 
when we started getting regulations on these issues that um, that a, a rich dental plan would seem to comply with the requirements and avoid penalties. And that continues to to seem to be the case because in these individual shared responsibility penalties, we're seeing that pre-tax contribution arrangements will factor into having a health plan that's sufficient. And so I think that once we get final regulations on the employer mandate component, we're likely to see a really, really broad definition of what constitutes a health plan, which is good news for employers because it means that employers are in the position to craft something that could be really low cost and it could be lower cost than paying the penalty, which I think initially when we saw this, we were, we were thinking that for most employers it would be cheaper to pay the penalty than to provide health insurance. But now that all these alternative re- arrangements are being recognized, I think it's, it's great news for employers, and so it's something to keep an eye on going forward. That's really interesting because at first I'd only heard of, okay, people are going to be choosing really high deductible plans to make it as low cost as possible, but I've never heard of just just having a rich dental plan that could possibly satisfy the the requirements that's interesting yeah it, it's it is um it's fascinating that the administration is allowing these models and i mean in that component i should say that it would need to be a self-insured dental plan because a lot of these requirements are really designed to um, target what coverage the exchanges offer and so we're seeing a lot of areas where coverage that isn't offered from the exchanges, and so these are the policies that employers provide directly, don't have to comply with a lot of these requirements. I'm going to apologize to listeners who are out of, out of Oregon, but um, there, there's been some changes in Oregon, uh, specifically with the, the, the Oregon Exchange. Can you tell us a little bit about what's, what's happened over the last few months and um, what, what employers can expect? Absolutely. So the Oregon Exchange, Oregon is one of the states that's really, really excited about healthcare reform. And so essentially as soon as Oregon got enough information to get the exchange started, we started seeing a lot of movement going forward on getting the exchange going. And um, we started seeing hiring. The website got pulled up. And so the Oregon Exchange right now is scheduled to open on October 1. And what we've been seeing in the last couple of months is we've been seeing a lot more information about what health plans the Oregon Exchange is going to offer, both to small employers and to individuals. And so we started to see some rate information. We've seen some more specifics about exactly what coverages will be provided in those health plans. And what we're being told at this point is that we won't have a lot of enrollment information available on the website until those exchanges open on October 1. But on October 1, we've been promised that um, there'll be a lot of staff available with Kerrigan to um, go through the options that are available to individuals and small employers and kind of help guide them through the process. So that way, hopefully they can compare the plans and get a good sense of whether it makes sense to look at those exchange coverage options or to continue with other types of coverage options in terms of the the premiums that you have seen come from i think it's called cover oregon is the oregon exchange Mm -hmm. have you seen that it's competitive with what private uh insurers are are offering at this point, yes. I mean, it, it, it's interesting to see the premiums because everyone's everyone's premiums are going up a little bit from healthcare reform at this point. And ultimately, we've kind of been promised that they'll swing back down as soon as we get some economies of scale. And I mean, at this point, of course, we're not seeing that, but I don't think anyone was expecting to see it. But it does seem that the Cover Oregon premiums appear to be competitive. Um, 
how the plans are set up on Cover Oregon is interesting just because it's a little bit more difficult to compare apples to apples if you're looking at what's offered in Cover Oregon to what you might be getting through your broker right now. And the reason for that is that Cover Oregon is tied to these plan designations. We have the bronze plan, the silver plan, the gold plan. So that way, um, they're kind of, they're in these silos based on those plan types and then the age of employee and it's kind of charted out that way. And so the, the benefits are just, they look a little bit different than, um, than the benefits you might be seeing from a broker from the employer standpoint. What will the, the individual experience be like? So if I wanted to go to cover Oregon and, and shop rates versus a private carrier, what, what does that experience look like? Am I going on their website and choosing my plan, getting a quote that way, or am I actually getting on the phone with somebody? The goal is that you'll be going on the website and choosing the plan that way. I think at the beginning, we're going to see a lot of phone service with Cover Oregon just because people aren't necessarily going to understand how the website works. But um, but ultimately, the goal of all of the exchanges is that it will be a web-based system and that we're supposed to be seeing side-by-side comparison. So there should ultimately be a way to see plan X compared to plan Y, and you can look through and see what coverage options are available for each plan and make then an informed decision based on that comparison. Let's let's move on to something that's a little bit more confusing to me <laughs> at least, um, the measurement and stability period. So what, what are employers required to do for this? And, and give maybe listeners a really broad sense of what this actually is and, and what it means. Of course. So the measurement stability periods, first off, the thing every employer should know is that they're a safe harbor. Employers don't have to use the measurement and stability periods. And employers with, you know, just consistent workforces who don't have variable hour employees, don't have seasonal employees, there's really no reason for them to use measurement and stability periods. But even employers who have those types of employees can choose to look on a monthly basis to determine whether or not employees qualify for coverage. When measurement and stability periods um, can be advantageous for an employer to put into place is when um, employers have a workforce that includes variable hour and seasonal employees and the employers are looking for a way to take some time to figure out how many hours those employees are working before they actually put them on the plan. And so typically, if we're just operating under health care reform, we have an employer who is subject to the employer mandate, and they're concerned that um, that they could be subject to penalties, then if an employee in a particular month bumped over 30 hours, then you would want to put them on the plan. And then if the next month they were less than 30 hours, you would want to take them off the plan. And so you could have a lot of on and off, and you could end up covering employees who you're keeping for a really short time, and you kind of never had the intention of including in your health care plans. What the measurement and stability periods allow you to do is they allow you to pick a measure, pick a longer-term period where you're going to be looking at and averaging an employee's hours over that longer-term period. And so for most employers, looking at a 12-month period makes sense. However, the period can be as short as three months. I just... I haven't really talked to any employers who have a situation where a three-month measurement period would make sense. Mm -hmm. And so typically what would happen is you would start measuring an employee's hours and you would look at them over a full 12-month period. And then at the end of that 12-month period, if their hours exceeded 
30 hours per week, then you would go ahead and put them on the health plan and they would need to continue that status on the health plan absent, of course, terminating employment or having a significant change in their job function that kind of changed their status. They would need to continue on that health plan for the next 12-month period, which is called the stability period. And I think that the, the tricky thing about measurement and stability periods is that when you're thinking about setting them up, they can feel really cumbersome because you'll need to have a standard measurement period, which employers typically set to um, to begin and, and in conjunction with their plan year and open enrollment period. So how it works is you can have a period of between 3 and 12 months that you're measuring the employees. Then you can have up to 90 days of administrative period to count hours and enroll employees. And employers typically line that up with their open enrollment period. And then after that, you have your period of stability, which cannot be less than your measurement period, but it's typically another 12-month period. And so just as an example, if you have an employer who is on a, um, a calendar year plan, which is, you know, typical for a lot of employers. So your plan year runs from January 1 to December 31. A common measurement period would be to have a measurement period that begins in the middle of October or at the beginning of November and runs for 12 months. And then when it ends, after that 12-month period, you have a couple months to count hours, get employees enrolled, which would line up with a calendar year open enrollment period. And then as of January 1 of the next year, you have employers in that or employees in that plan. And so the, the tricky piece for this then from the employer perspective is that they need to be in a position to have these variable hour employees enrolled in their plan as of January 1, 2015, which means if they intend to use a 12-month measurement stability period, then really this fall is when they need to get those periods started. And so I've been talking to a lot of employers about the best way to manage getting those periods set up now because I know that some payroll companies don't yet have their processes in place. So we've been looking at some mechanisms for getting the counting started and then ultimately, you know, getting the process rolling so that way as new employees come on, the process has already started looking forward. And so that's that's kind of the, the big picture view. So I know that the concept when we're looking at it in abstract can be really confusing. So Brandon, please let me know if you see any areas I could clarify here. Uh, you did a great job of uh, clarifying what what it means. The the question I was going to have for you, and you touched on it a little bit, is how do you even start tracking something like this? Is it the responsibility of an employer? Are they tracking it in like a spreadsheet? Or is it at the responsibility of if somebody's using a third-party payroll company or maybe they have a payroll department in-house, are they tracking it in whatever system they're using or their accounting system? Or, you know, what what have you seen? What I've seen is that most employers who use an external payroll company are working with their payroll companies to try to get a, a good system in place. And most of the payroll companies either already have a system in place or they're working to get one in place by January 1. And so for employers who are working with payroll companies who won't have a system in place until January 1, they're doing a lot of Excel spreadsheet tracking this fall. And so their, their plan is just kind of to do this the Excel spreadsheet tracking, and then as January 1, to get all the data loaded into the payroll system and then going forward to use their third-party payroll. Because I know that um, third-party payroll companies are putting together some great solutions to make this a little bit easier for employers to track. 
I, I'm a personal huge fan of Excel, but I worry about the uh, <laughs> human error factor. Um, yeah. It's like a payroll system. You have um, some standardized mechanisms and, and that sort of thing. Um, probably less room for error in that case. So you think a lot of people will probably move to that direction come 1-1. Exactly. So use an external payroll provider. I think that they will move to that direction. And um, for a lot of employers, too, it depends on if you have three variable hour or seasonal employees in a year, then it's not really that hard to track those hours. But if you're, you know, a a fire district and you have just a ton of people coming in and out or a retailer, then those are the employers who are really going to need those external resources. And I think we'll also start seeing um, some computer programs in development, or they may even already be coming out, that um, that are designed specifically to track this. So that way employers find themselves relying less on Excel if they have a lot of employees going in and out. Before I let you go, I want to go sort of off topic, but before I do that, Anything else about healthcare reform, either at the federal or the state level, that you want to touch on? Um, no, I think we've covered most of the new developments. We did have a new set of regulations just come out yesterday afternoon. And so um, at, at this point, they're not requiring that we take any um, any big action, but it's definitely a sign that um, – that the the administration is moving forward and trying to get these regulations out. And so I think that all employers should definitely keep an eye out for the non-discrimination regulations because this is one component of healthcare reform that could have a big impact on employers who right now have different plans for different groups of employees. And um, we've been waiting for these regulations since 2012. And so this is one area that I, I kind of keep reminding employers to just keep an eye out for those regulations and then we'll, of course, go ahead and um, and send an alert. So if any if anyone's listening to this, I know that um, the name often passes on our alerts mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. That um, that you know, just watch for watch for guidance on those non discrimination rules because they could definitely have an impact on employer plans going forward. Yeah, Baron Liebman always has some great e alerts and and Zenium. We we always try to pass that along, whether we just post an excerpt or a link uh, up to your e alert. So we'll watch for that for sure. And then maybe when new regulations come out regarding healthcare reform, either at the the state level or the federal level, maybe we'll have you back on again. <laughs> Sounds great. So let's go off topic a little bit, just because there was some some new uh, guidance about same-sex marriage that I wanted you to touch on because it is quite interesting and I think it just happened over the last couple weeks so maybe you can shed some light on what happened and uh, what employers can expect. Absolutely. So just this last week, um, before the holiday weekend, apparently the administration loves putting stuff out just before the holiday weekend, but um, the IRS released some guidance on on taxation of benefits for same-sex marriage partners. And this is relevant, of course, arising from the DOMA decision that we had out of the Supreme Court earlier this year. And so the IRS has historically, when they're determining the validity of a marriage, looked at the state of domicile, where the married couple lives. And this is important because 
a couple who were to get married in a state where same-sex marriage is legal, for example, Washington, and who lived then in Oregon, would not have a valid marriage under the IRS, under the old rules. And so once DOMA came out, we kind of had wondered whether the IRS and ultimately the DOL were going to move to a state of celebration model. And what that means is if a couple were to get married in a state where same-sex marriage is legal, then ultimately the IRS or the DOL would look to that state to determine the validity of the marriage. And so what we saw from the IRS this last week is exactly that. The IRS came out with a notice that stated that the state of celebration is the state that matters for determining the validity of a marriage. And so if any couple gets married in a state where same-sex marriage is legal, regardless of where they live, they ultimately have the federal tax benefits of a valid marriage. And so for employers in, um, in states that border states that in which same-sex marriage is legal, for example, Oregon specifically, kind of nestled between California and Washington, which are both same-sex marriage states. It's just um, something to, to keep in mind and be aware of. Right now, under state law, domestic partner benefits aren't taxable. However, federal benefits, we've been imputing to the employee. And um, going forward, this just won't be something that you need to do because now they're, they're tax-free at the federal level as long as the couple is actually married. And so it's just something for, um, for employers to be aware of. I mean, we definitely wouldn't recommend going um, kind of prying into employees' lives and asking too many questions, but um, giving employees the opportunity to disclose that they have a valid marriage is a, is a great way to handle it and just kind of passing out in mass the paperwork or a communication in mass that just says, hey, if you have a, a valid same-sex marriage, you know, this is recognized under federal law and let us know. And kind of the, the second component of that is that individuals have the option to go back to open tax years, which is typically three years, and ask for a refund based on those imputed benefits. And so you may be getting some requests from employees to get that information so that way they can go ahead and, um, and make those changes. You just might be seeing some requests to your payroll department. And then kind of the, the other component of that is that employers also have the option to go back and get a refund for the payroll taxes that they paid on those benefits. And so um, for most employers, they think that the dollar value is going to be low enough that they won't ultimately decide to go back and make those amendments. But there may be some employers who find that um, the dollar value is high enough that it makes sense to go back and look at their taxes and um, get some refunds. If individuals choose not to disclose this information to their employer and couldn't they actually just have this uh, have their CPA make the change or, or on their tax returns instead Oh, they absolutely could. They would just um, potentially need some information from the employer about the value of the benefits. They might have that information. I mean, if they're if um, they're the type of person who just maintains a really studious file, they could have that information on hand and just be able to work directly with the CPA. But um, I know that I wouldn't have that information on file, and so that's why I think we might be seeing some requests. Any resources that you could point? Uh listeners to um, and also please give out your email address website phone number anything that you want to give away 
Of course. Um, so just starting with resources, the DOL's webpage on the um, on healthcare reform called the Affordable Care Act continues to be a really good place to get up-to-date guidance. And so um, the DOL publishes frequently asked questions with quite a bit of regularity and then also posts any model notices and other related information to that webpage. And so that webpage is on, it's dol.gov, and then it's slash EBSA healthcare reform. But you can also just Google Department of Labor healthcare reform, and that'll typically get you to the website. And that's just a great resource for um, for notices and kind of other easy to understand guidance because that's where you'll see you know frequently asked questions, you'll see field guidance and, and that type of information. And then if you have any questions, you can always contact me. My email address is itilly, T-I-L-L-E-Y, at barron, B-A-R-R-A-N dot com. And then our website is just barron, B-A-R-R-A-N dot com. Thanks so much, Brandon. You're welcome. And um, you've now become a regular on the show, so we'll, we'll, have, <laughs> we'll have you back in the future. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Iris Tilly, thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Zenium Resources, Inc., all rights reserved. For information on guests or for interview requests, please visit www.zeniumhr.com or email info at zeniumhr.com. Everything on this show should be considered educational and informational only and not personal advice. Please consult with the appropriate tax, legal, or business professional for individualized advice.